Chapter Nine of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Nine. Miss Lipscomb decides on neutrality. As he dressed for dinner that evening, Smith realized the absurdity of the doctrine of free will. Here was he, as free as subject as ever raised his glass to the toast of the king, God bless him, continuing in a false position, deliberately aiding and abetting, well, perhaps not a fraud, but at least a misunderstanding. What would his uncle say? What would his aunt Charlotte not say? And it was always the things that Mrs. Compton Stacy refrained from saying that constituted her a power in the family councils. Above all, what would Peter's look? And Peter's look had been known to pierce the epidermis of a profiteer. If they could see the heir to the Hildred baronetcy and estates deliberately taking advantage of his likeness to another man. Why was he doing it? Confound the stud! For the next minute his whole attention was occupied in retrieving the collar stud that had disappeared somewhere inside his shirt. Having dug it out, he picked up the thread of his previous preoccupation. Why was he staying on? He could hire a car to take him to Norwich, and so reach Cromer, the destination he had planned. No. He preferred to remain on, and reap the whirlwind of another man's sowing. Why? Across his mind's eye there flashed the memory of a suddenly illuminated window, at which stood a girl in a green frock, looking out into the rain-drenched night, apparently at him. With an impatient tug he adjusted his black tie to the correct angle, and proceeded to thrust an arm into his waistcoat his thoughts switching on to the scene at the Grange an hour before, when he had announced his impending departure. The wails of Mrs. Higgs, the scarcely restrained tears of Willis, the grin of young Nudd in the background, all had conspired to make his departure almost as dramatic as his arrival. The two old servants had pleaded and protested, Mrs. Higgs in particular, against his going to the vicarage. What would her ladyship do? What would the county think? what would the villagers say, had been the burden of their exhortation. At one period it had seemed that nothing short of physical force would detach the tearful and loudly protesting Mrs. Higgs from his coat-sleeve. But a miracle had happened in the sudden appearance of Marjorie. In a few words, accompanied by a little smile, which both Willis and Mrs. Higgs had taken as a purely personal affair, she had soothed the one and detached the other from his coat-sleeve, and he had been permitted to leave, accompanied by young Nudd carrying his bag. The sound of the dinner-gong brought Smith back with a jerk to the present. Hastily slipping into his dinner-jacket, he made his way downstairs, to find Miss Lipscomb waiting for him in the hall. "'I thought you might lose yourself in this ramshackle old place,' she explained, as she led the way to the dining-room. "'We are six hundred years old,' she added. During the meal that followed, Smith discovered that, conversationally, the vicar scarcely existed. A direct remark would bring him from the world of his own thoughts with a sudden start, but he slipped back again as soon as the attention of the others was diverted. Several times during the evening Smith found himself speculating as to what it was that monopolized the vicar's thoughts, and it was not until Miss Lipscomb explained that he was a minister of the gospel preoccupied with paganism that he realized the true significance of the momentary look of bewilderment that came into the old man's eyes when he was directly addressed. Smith longed to inquire of Miss Lipscomb what it actually was that had caused Alfred Warren's sudden disappearance from Little Bilstead, 
but the question was one that seemed incapable of framing itself. After all, it was Warren's secret, and there was something almost indecent in probing into the unsavoury past of another man. As she talked, Smith was conscious that Miss Lipscombe was studying him, weighing him up, it seemed. Her grave, grey eyes appeared to be searching him through and through. Her conversation dealt, for the most part, with generalities and the news of the day. When she had occasion to refer to the parish or to anyone living in the neighbourhood, it was in an entirely impersonal manner, just as if she were addressing one who was an entire stranger to the neighbourhood. After the meal, the vicar retired to his study, there to lave himself in the classics he so loved, whilst Smith accompanied Miss Lipscombe to the drawing-room. At first he thought she would select this as the occasion of a more intimate talk. But no. She maintained the same impersonal plane of small talk as at dinner. He learned much about little Bilstead. There was a dryness about Miss Lipscombe's descriptions that suggested both humour and humanity lurking behind her words. Among other things, he learned that the forthcoming cricket match was the old fresco event of the year. As far as he could gather, it was the little Bilstead's something between a football cup final and Oxford and Cambridge at Lord's. It appealed alike to the proletariat and the patrician. He discovered that he was expected to play, as it seemed to have become a time-honoured custom that Alfred Warren should form part of the little Bilstead tale, which, according to Miss Limpscombe, existed primarily for the improvement of the bowling averages of the enemy. He gathered that Alfred Warren had disliked field sports, although he was a tolerable shot, and hunted in spasmodic fashion. His playing in the cricket match was his sop to the Cerberus of public opinion. He learned a great deal about the social life of Little Bilstead, more from Miss Lipscombe's expression and the inflection of her voice than from her actual words. Miss Jell was a prig, he decided, whereas Miss Mary was sweet and lovable, and very popular in the village. Dr. Crane was a married bachelor, it was a way of conveying his intense selfishness, and Mrs. Crane was a doormat. Of Marjorie, Miss Lipscombe said little, but that little suggested to his eager ears that she was the most popular being in the parish. Her brother was a young scapegrace, Smith was assured, but there was a flicker about the corners of Miss Lipscombe's mouth when she gave the assurance, which convinced him that in the abundance of her charity there was a special place for scapegraces, and possibly even a little affection. The vicar was of the world unworldly. The only thing that ever brought him from the back blocks of atticism was cricket. The annual encounter between Little Bilstead and Upper Sexton always excited him to such a degree that Miss Lipscombe had to insist that the sermons for the Sunday to follow should be written before the event, no matter on what day the match were played. If they were left until after, they would either be forgotten altogether, or would so smack of cricket as to become a direct invitation for a rebuke from the bishop. He would rather meet a sinner with a century to his name than a saint who had failed to score, was Miss Lipscombe's definition of her brother's character, but it was given in such a tone that conveyed to Smith the conviction that she was not so very far from sharing his view. There were many stories in Little Bilstead of the vicar's absent-mindedness. On one occasion, at a christening, he had turned from the font, the baby still in his arms, and walked slowly towards the vestry, forgetful that the infant had to be returned to its parent. On the night of the armistice, he had gone down to the village where he had drunk a cup of cider outside the pigeons. Then, inspired by the excitement of the moment, he had offered up a prayer, not, as he had intended, for the guidance of those at the national helm, but 
for rain. In the middle of the night he had realized his lapse, and had sought counsel with his sister. She had promptly ordered him back to bed, at the same time easing his conscience by telling him that, in any case, rain was badly needed. In speaking of her brother, Smith noticed that Miss Lipscombe's whole manner underwent a change. The tendency of her features towards severity of expression vanished. The humorous lines at the corners of her mouth sprang into prominence, and her voice softened to the tone of a mother speaking of a much-loved child. Marjorie, he gathered, spent much of her time at the Grange. She had always been a great favourite with Lady Warren, and during the last few years had been almost a daughter to her. It was only the claims of her own father and brother that had prevented her from accompanying Lady Warren upon her voyage to South Africa. She was a fine horsewoman, and invariably rode cross-country. Her horse, Nero, had been a present from Lady Warren, and he was permanently stabled at the Grange. "'He is utterly spoiled,' was Miss Lipscombe's verdict upon Nero. "'And I wonder he doesn't get diabetes from the amount of sugar he eats,' she added. But again there was nothing but good-natured tolerance in her voice. Smith shrewdly suspected that Miss Lipscombe was among those who pandered to Nero's weakness." Presently they touched upon the cause of his being there. "'Have you gone over to the enemy?' he queried, a smile disguising his anxiety. She shook her head with the air of one who is uncertain. "'You are very much like him, but still there is something different,' she said, still regarding Smith attentively. "'From what I have heard, I should hope there is a great deal that is different,' he said dryly. "'Although it may smack of the Pharisee,' he added." "'But is it possible for two men to be so much alike as—' She paused. "'You remember Adolf Beck,' said Smith. "'He was twice convicted of another man's crime, and that man, a criminal, whose every physical peculiarity was chronicled at Scotland Yard under the Bertillon system. There have been other cases just as remarkable,' he added. She nodded absently, as if pondering something that puzzled her. "'Well,' she said at length, I suppose those who live longest will see most, as my old grandmother used to say. In the meantime, it's ten o'clock, and we are early to bed, folk. Again, there was that fluttering at the corners of her mouth that did duty for a smile. With a feeling of disappointment he was unable to account for, Smith rose and followed her into the hall. "'Even if we agree that you are not Alfred Warren,' she said, as she struck a match and proceeded to light the candles on the hall-table, there remains another problem to be solved. Another? he cried, startled in spite of himself. Surely this is enough to be going on with, he added, with a whimsical smile. If you are not Alfred Warren, she continued gravely, looking up and fixing him with her keen grey eyes, what sort of a man is James Smith? He had felt all along that she did not regard him as Alfred Warren, but her disconcerting question merely shifted the centre of responsibility. It was no longer a question of proving to her that he was not Alfred Warren, but of justifying James Smith, and of the two the newer problem seemed the more difficult. "'In any case, you can't do any harm to Alfred Warren's memory,' she remarked dryly as she handed him his candlestick. "'In all probability you'll sweeten it.' And with that she turned and preceded him upstairs." "'Good night,' she said at the top of the stairs, as she extended her hand. "'You'll find me a blunt old woman who speaks her thoughts,' 
she added. This time there was no doubt about the fluttering at the corners of her mouth. That night, as he sat smoking at his bedroom window, Smith found his thoughts revolving round Miss Lipscombe's remark about sweetening the memory of the absent Alfred Warren. What if he had done his bit? Hundreds of failures had made good out there. Strange stories had been told in the trenches. He recalled that of a man in his own company, who had been shot whilst bringing in a wounded comrade from no man's land. As he lay dying, he had confessed to the padre to having murdered a girl. He had done it in a fit of mad jealousy. Yet no one had shrunk from him, least of all the padre. On the contrary, he had comforted the poor fellow with the assurance that he had expiated his crime by giving up his own life for another. In any case, there could be no harm done to Alfred Warren if he stayed on, at least for a time. It might sweeten his memory, as Miss Lipscombe had suggested. Was the remark intended as a hint? What would be Marjorie's view, he wondered? Would she be sympathetic, or just coldly indifferent? Somehow or other, her scarcely veiled antagonism had set him thinking. What had he done outside his war service? There had been precious little that would come under the heading of usefulness. The world was not exactly the better for a century made at Lord's, or a winning try scored just on time at Queen's Club. Nor did the fact of being a good shot with a gun, the wrong sort of gun, make for the betterment of mankind. St. George had not slain the dragon with a double-barreled ejector sporting rifle, with luncheon and the ladies at one-thirty and dinner at eight. Washington had not freed America in football boots. Garibaldi would most likely have proved the veriest rabbit in the cricket field, whilst Cromwell, in all probability, could no more cast a fly than stroke an eight. Why had he never thought of all this before? Why had he just accepted things, just as his uncle had accepted Peter's shaven upper lip, and flown into a passion when it vanished beneath a cascade of auburn hair? It was all very puzzling. War was certainly the very devil for shifting values and destroying age-old ideals. The world seemed to him to have become one almighty why. It was so easy for the King Alfreds, the Joan of Arcs, and the Luthers of the world. Their destinies seemed obvious and preordained. But for the rest? Well, it was a bit difficult. Stevenson had said that life might be interpreted as having a good time and enriching the world with a few good things. It was not a bad philosophy, better than hunting for motes in another fellow's eye. There was the vicar, for instance. He would sweeten the memory of the devil himself, and, what was more, he appeared to do it without effort. It was nearly one o'clock when he finally decided to lay the problems and his head upon the white pillow that looked so inviting. Still, it really was the very devil. End of chapter 9